This is John Tierney. However you define success, a happy family, good friends, a satisfying career, robust health, financial security, the freedom to pursue your passions, it tends to be accompanied by a couple of qualities. When psychologists isolate the personal qualities that predict positive outcomes in life, they consistently find two traits, intelligence and self-control. So far, researchers still haven't learned how to permanently increase intelligence, but they have discovered, or at least rediscovered, how to improve self-control. Hence this book. We think that research into willpower and self-control is psychology's best hope for contributing to human welfare. Willpower lets us change ourselves and our society in small and large ways. As Charles Darwin wrote in The Descent of Man, the highest possible stage in moral culture is when we recognize that we ought to control our thoughts. The Victorian notion of willpower would later fall out of favor, with some 20th century psychologists and philosophers doubting it even existed. This is Roy Baumeister. I myself started out as something of a skeptic, but then I observed willpower in the laboratory, how it gives people the strength to persevere, how they lose self-control as their willpower is depleted, how this mental energy is fueled by the glucose in the body's bloodstream. My collaborators and I discovered that willpower, like a muscle, becomes fatigued from overuse, but can also be strengthened over the long term through exercise. Since my experiments first demonstrated the existence of willpower, it's become one of the most intensively studied topics in social science, and those experiments now rank among the most cited research in psychology. My colleagues around the world have found that improving willpower is the surest way to a better life. We've come to realize that most major problems, personal and social, center on failure of self-control. Compulsive spending and borrowing, impulsive violence, underachievement in school, procrastination at work, alcohol and drug abuse, unhealthy diet, lack of exercise, chronic anxiety, explosive anger. Poor self-control correlates with just about every kind of individual trauma. Losing friends, being fired, getting divorced, winding up in prison. It can cost you the U.S. Open, as Serena Williams' tantrum in 2009 demonstrated. It can destroy your career, as adulterous politicians keep discovering. It contributed to the epidemic of risky loans and investments that devastated the financial system and to the shaky prospects for so many people who failed, along with their political leaders, to set aside enough money for their old age. Ask people to name their greatest personal strengths, and they'll often credit themselves with honesty, kindness, humor, creativity, bravery, and other virtues, even modesty, but not self-control. That came in dead last among the virtues being studied by researchers who've surveyed more than a million people around the world. Of the two dozen character strengths listed in the researchers' questionnaire, Self-control was the one that people were least likely to recognize in themselves. Conversely, when people were asked about their failings, a lack of self-control was at the top of the list. People feel overwhelmed because there are more temptations than ever. Your body may have dutifully reported to work on time, but your mind can escape at any instant through the click of a mouse or a phone. You can put off any job by checking email or Facebook, surfing gossip sites, or playing a video game. 
A typical computer user checks out more than three dozen websites a day. You can do enough damage in a 10-minute online shopping spree to wreck your budget for the rest of the year. Temptations never cease. We often think of willpower as an extraordinary force to be summoned to deal with emergencies. But that's not what my colleagues and I found when we recently monitored a group of more than 200 men and women in central Germany. These Germans wore beepers that went off at random intervals seven times a day, prompting them to report whether they were currently experiencing some sort of desire or had recently felt such a desire. The painstaking study led by Wilhelm Hoffmann collected more than 10,000 momentary reports from morning until midnight. Desire turned out to be the norm, not the exception. About half the time, people were feeling some desire at the moment their beepers went off, and another quarter said a desire had just been felt in the past few minutes. Many of these desires were ones they were trying to resist. The researchers concluded that people spend about a quarter of their waking hours resisting desires, at least four hours per day. Put another way, if you tapped four people at any random moment of the day, one of them would be using willpower to resist a desire. And that doesn't even include all the instances in which willpower is exercised because people use it for other things too, such as making decisions. The most commonly resisted desire in the Beeper study was the urge to eat, followed by the urge to sleep, and then by the urge for leisure, like taking a break from work by doing a puzzle or game instead of writing a memo. Sexual urges were next on the list of most resisted desires, a little ahead of urges for other kinds of interactions, like checking email and social networking sites, surfing the web, listening to music, or watching television. To ward off temptation, people reported using various strategies. The most popular was to look for a distraction or to undertake a new activity, although sometimes they tried suppressing it directly or simply toughing their way through it. Their success was decidedly mixed. They were pretty good at avoiding sleep, sex, and the urge to spend money, but not so good at resisting the lure of television or the web, or the general temptation to relax instead of work. On average, when they tried to resist a desire with willpower, they succeeded about half the time. A 50% failure rate sounds discouraging, and it may well be pretty bad by historical standards. We have no way of knowing how much our ancestors exercised self-control in the days before beepers and experimental psychologists, but it seems likely that they were under less strain. During the Middle Ages, most people were peasants who put in long, dull days in the fields, frequently accompanied by prodigious amounts of ale. They weren't angling for promotions at work or trying to climb the social ladder, so there wasn't a premium on diligence or a great need for sobriety. Their villages didn't offer many obvious temptations beyond alcohol, sex, or plain old sloth. Virtue was generally enforced by a desire to avoid public disgrace rather than by any zeal to achieve human perfection. In the medieval Catholic Church, salvation depended more on being part of the group and keeping up with the standard rituals than on heroic acts of willpower. But as farmers moved into industrial cities during the 19th century, they were no longer constrained by village churches and social pressures and universal beliefs. The Protestant Reformation had made religion more individualistic, and the Enlightenment had weakened faith in any kind of dogma. 
Victorians saw themselves as living in a time of transition as the moral certainties and rigid institutions of medieval Europe died away. A popular topic of debate was whether morality could survive without religion. Many Victorians came to doubt religious principles on theoretical grounds, but they kept pretending to be faithful believers because they considered it their public duty to preserve morality. Today, it's easy to mock their hypocrisy and prudery, like the little skirts they put on table legs. No bare ankles. Mustn't excite anyone. If you read their earnest sermons on God and duty, or their battier theories on sex, you can understand why people of that era turned for relief to Oscar Wilde's philosophy. I can resist everything except temptation. But considering all the new temptations available, it was hardly neurotic to be searching for new sources of strength. As Victorians fretted over moral decay and the social pathologies concentrated in cities, they looked for something more tangible than divine grace, some internal strength that could protect even an atheist. They began using the term willpower because of the folk notion that some kind of force was involved, some inner equivalent to the steam powering the Industrial Revolution. People sought to increase their store of it by following the exhortations of the Englishman Samuel Smiles in Self-Help, one of the most popular books of the 19th century on both sides of the Atlantic. Genius is patience, he reminded readers, explaining the success of everyone from Isaac Newton to Stonewall Jackson as the result of self-denial and untiring perseverance. Another Victorian-era guru, the American minister Frank Channing Haddock, published an international bestseller titled simply The Power of Will. He tried to sound scientific by calling it an energy which is susceptible of increase in quantity and of development in quality. But he had no idea, much less any evidence, of what it might be. A similar notion occurred to someone with better credentials, Sigmund Freud, who theorized that the self depended on mental activities involving the transfer of energy. But Freud's energy model of the self was generally ignored by subsequent researchers. It wasn't until recently, in Baumeister's laboratory, that scientists began systematically looking for this source of energy. Until then, for most of the past century, psychologists and educators and the rest of the chattering classes kept finding one reason or another to believe it didn't exist. The Decline of the Will whether you survey the annals of academe or the self-help books at the airport, it's clear that the 19th century concept of character building has been out of fashion for quite a while. The fascination with willpower ebbed in the 20th century, partly in reaction to the Victorians' excesses and partly due to economic changes in the world wars. The prolonged bloodshed of World War I seemed a consequence of too many stubborn gentlemen following their duty to senseless deaths. Intellectuals preached a more relaxed view of life in America and much of Western Europe, but not, unfortunately, in Germany, where they developed a psychology of will to guide their country during its bleak recovery from the war. That theme would be embraced by the Nazis, whose rally in 1934 was featured in Lenny Riefenstahl's infamous propaganda film, The Triumph of the Will. The Nazi concept of mass obedience to a sociopath was hardly the Victorian concept of personal moral strength, but the distinction was lost. 
If the Nazis represented the triumph of the will, well, when it comes to bad PR, there's nothing quite like a personal endorsement from Adolf Hitler. The decline of will didn't seem like such a bad thing, and after the war, there were other forces weakening it. As technology made goods cheaper and suburbanites richer, stimulating consumer demand became vital to the economy, and a sophisticated new advertising industry urged everyone to buy now. Sociologists identified a new generation of other-directed people who were guided by their neighbors' opinions rather than by strong inner moral convictions. The stern self-help books of the Victorian era came to be seen as naively self-centered. The new bestsellers were cheery works like Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People and Norman Vincent Peale's The Power of Positive Thinking. Carnegie spent eight pages instructing readers how to smile. The right smile would make people feel good about you, he explained, and if they believed in you, success was assured. Peel and other authors came up with an even easier method. The basic factor in psychology is the realizable wish, Peel wrote. The man who assumes success tends already to have success. Napoleon Hill sold millions of copies of Think and Grow Rich by telling readers to decide how much money they wanted, write the figure down on a piece of paper, and then believe yourself already in possession of the money. These gurus' books would go on selling for the rest of the century, and the feel-good philosophy would be distilled to a rhyming slogan, Believe it, achieve it. The shift in people's characters was noticed by a psychoanalyst named Alan Wheelis, who in the late 1950s revealed what he considered a dirty little secret of his profession. Freudian therapies no longer worked the way they were supposed to. In his landmark book, The Quest for Identity, Wheelis described a change in character structure since Freud's day. The Victorian middle-class citizens who formed the bulk of Freud's patients had intensely strong wills, making it difficult for therapists to break through their ironclad defenses and their sense of what was right and wrong. Freud's therapies had concentrated on ways to break through and let them see why they were neurotic and miserable, because once those people achieved insight, they could change rather easily. By mid-century, though, people's character armor was different. Wheelis and his colleagues found that people achieved insight more quickly than in Freud's day. But then the therapy often stalled and failed. Lacking the sturdy character of the Victorians, people didn't have the strength to follow up on the insight and change their lives. Wheelis used Freudian terms in discussing the decline of the superego in Western society, but he was essentially talking about a weakening of willpower. And all this was before the baby boomers came of age in the 1960s with the countercultural mantra of, if it feels good, do it. Popular culture kept celebrating self-indulgence for the me generation of the 1970s. And there were new arguments against willpower from social scientists whose numbers and influence soared during the late 20th century. Most social scientists look for causes of misbehavior outside the individual. poverty relative deprivation, oppression, or other failures of the environment or the economic and political systems. Searching for external factors is often more comfortable for everyone, particularly for the many academics who worry that they risk the politically incorrect sin of blaming the victim by suggesting that people's problems might arise from causes inside themselves. 
Social problems can also seem easier than character defects to fix, at least to the social scientists proposing new policies and programs to deal with them. The very notion that people can consciously control themselves has traditionally been viewed suspiciously by psychologists. Freudians claimed that much of adult human behavior was the result of unconscious forces and processes. B.F. Skinner had little respect for the value of consciousness and other mental processes, except as needed to process reinforcement contingencies. In Beyond Freedom and Dignity, he argued that to understand human nature, we must get beyond the outmoded values in the book's title. While many of Skinner's specific theories were discarded, aspects of his approach have found new life among psychologists convinced that the conscious mind is subservient to the unconscious. The will came to seem so unimportant that it wasn't even measured or mentioned in modern personality theories. Some neuroscientists claim to have disproved its existence. Many philosophers refuse to use the term. If they want to debate this classical philosophical question of freedom of the will, they prefer to speak of freedom of action, not of will, because they doubt there is any such thing as will. Some refer disdainfully to the so-called will. Recently, some scholars have even begun to argue that the legal system must be revamped to eliminate outdated notions of free will and responsibility. I shared the general skepticism toward willpower when I started my career as a social psychologist in the 1970s at Princeton. My colleagues were then focusing not on self-control, but on self-esteem, and I took a leading role in this research, which showed that people with more confidence in their ability and their self-worth tended to be happier and more successful. So why not help everyone else succeed by finding ways to boost their confidence? This seemed a reasonable enough goal to psychologists as well as the masses who bought pop versions of self-esteem and empowerment in bestsellers like I'm Okay, You're Okay and Awaken the Giant Within. But the eventual results were disappointing both inside and outside the laboratory. While international surveys showed that U.S. 8th grade math students had exceptionally high confidence in their own abilities, on tests they scored far below Koreans, Japanese, and other students with less self-esteem. Meanwhile, in the 1980s, a few researchers started getting interested in self-regulation, the term that psychologists use for self-control. The resurrection of self-control wasn't led by theorists who were still convinced that willpower was a quaint Victorian myth. But when other psychologists went into the laboratory or the field, they kept happening on something that looked an awful lot like it. <laughs> 